don't have a photocopy for this sutta which I'm going to read. I've only decided on this sutta just recently. And uh, it's about the Buddha's own pathway from an ordinary being to enlightenment. The word ordinary, of course, does not quite apply because he had been practicing for many lifetimes. But then, so have we. Whether we were successful with our practice, that of course is a debatable question and beyond my knowledge. But because it's the Buddha's own pathway, how he thought and did it, I think it is of a particular interest to us to see how he, the great teacher, did it himself. And uh, it's fairly lengthy, of course, so we're not going to finish all this tonight. It's called The Noble Search. Rasi Sutta, the mass of snails. And the beginning of the Sutta is quite typical in a way which we haven't had because it tells a fairly lengthy story, comparable to the others, of where all this took place, the telling of it. Again, as you may remember, I said that Ananda was the one who quoted the Buddha after the Buddha's death, and the reason for his detailed explanation where this was, was that the other um, monks could check him. Here he gives a quite a lengthy story, um, and... Um, One would assume that it was him talking, but uh, when we read it, it doesn't. might have been somebody else repeating this sutta. Thus have I heard, on one occasion the Blessed One was living at Savati in Jata's Grove and at Appendicus Park. Now, I told you the story on that. What I didn't mention is that the Buddha spent 25 rains retreats in that particular um, monastery. And that's why many of the suttas are uh, reported to have taken place there, many of the discourses, because he was there 25 years in a row for the rain retreat. Then when it was morning, the Blessed One dressed and taking his bowl and outer rope, he went into Savati for arms. Then many bhikkhus went to the Venerable Ananda and said to him, Friend Ananda, it's a long time since we heard a talk on the Dhamma from the Blessed One's own lips. It would be good if we could do so, friend Ananda. And then Ananda said, Then let the Venerable Ones go to Ramaka, the Divine's retreat. Perhaps you will hear a talk on the Dhamma from the Blessed One's own lips. Very well, friend, they replied. Ramaka is a person and he has a retreat place, apparently, where Ananda is presuming that the Buddha is going. 
because he says perhaps he can, he can hear something. Now when the Blessed One had wandered for alms and poverty and had returned from his alms round after his meal, he addressed the Venerable Ananda. Ananda, let us go to the eastern park to the palace of Megara's mother for the day's abiding. Now if you remember, Megara's mother is actually his wife and she's called Visaka. Even so, Venerable Sir, the Venerable Ananda replied, and then the Blessed One went with the Venerable Ananda to the Eastern Park, the palace of Megara's mother, for the day's abiding. Day's abiding means the day's meditation. So what you're doing here, you're having day's abiding. That's what the set is meant by that. Now when it was evening, the Blessed One rose from meditation, and he addressed the Venerable Ananda, Ananda, let us go to the eastern bathing place and bathe our limbs. Very well, sir, the Venerable Ananda replied, and then the Blessed One went with the Venerable Ananda to the eastern bathing place to bathe his limbs, and when he had done so, he came up out of the water and stood in one robe, drying his limbs. And then the Venerable Ananda said, Venerable Sir, Ramaka, the Divine's retreat, is nearby. That retreat is agreeable and delightful. Venerable Sir, it would be good if the Blessed One went there out of compassion. The Blessed One consented in silence. So we're giving a whole story how the Buddha came to go to this retreat place, and when Ananda saw him drying himself in the bathing place, he asked him to come and Buddha agreed. And then the Blessed One went to Ramaka, the Divine's retreat. Now the Divine in the translation in English, is, I don't think it's a very good, it's a Brahmin. That's all it means, he's a Brahmin. That doesn't mean that he's a half-god or a god or anything like that. He's a Brahmin, and the Brahmins are the highest caste in India, were and are, and um, the priest caste. But not necessarily every Brahmin was a priest. But this is a translation, and I don't think that this translation is very good, and I don't think it's being kept now in the new translation. Now, on that occasion, many bhikkhus had gathered together there to discuss the Dhamma. The Blessed One stood outside the door, waiting for the end of their discussion, and when he knew that it was finished, he coughed and knocked, and the bhikkhus opened the door for him. And then he went inside and sat down on his feet, made ready. And when he had done so, he addressed the bhikkhus thus, because, for what discussion are you gathered here now? And what was your discussion meanwhile, which was left unfinished? Venerable Sir, our discussion which was left unfinished was about the Dhamma, and it was about the Blessed One himself. And then the Blessed One arrived. Well, that's nice. They talked about the Buddha and they tell him. So that's good because it becomes you that as clansmen who have gone forth from the home life into homelessness out of faith you gather for discussion of the dhamma this is the traditional terminology of describing a monk of course also a nun but since the whole of the sutta is the whole of the pali canon is written in the male sex language it's always because but there were, in the Buddha's time, thousands of nuns. His own stepmother was the first nun. And uh, one could say inaugurated the nun's order. So what this traditional sentence is that as clansmen, as... Um, 
I really don't know another word. Um, Hmm? Kinsman. Yeah, but that means it actually what it denotes is that they are they belong to the same clan and are related, but that's not the case. I mean they could have been from anywhere, these people. Um uh, actually it means that they're people of good standing. That's what it means. They are recognized people of good standing, they're not robbers or, or, or um, thieves or something like that. They are people of good standing. As clansmen who have gone forth from the home life, having a home, into homelessness, which means leaving the family and um, uh, not having the uh, ordinary way of making a living. That means becoming a monk or a nun, out of faith, out of confidence in the teaching. You have gathered here for discussion of the Dharma, so it is the right thing to do. When you are gathered together, there are two alternatives. Discussion of the Dhamma, Dhamma or the Noble One's silence. So it's either one or the other. Either you'll be quiet or you talk about the Dhamma itself. No third possibility. So they were all right, they were talking about the Dhamma. So now he gives them a talk. Because there are these two kinds of search. The Noble Search and the ignoble Search. And what is the ignoble search? Here someone, himself, subject to birth, old age, decay and death, sorrow and defilement, seeks what is also subject to birth, old age, sickness and death and sorrow and defilement. That's the ignoble search. And what may be said to the sub- to be subject to birth? Wife and children are subject to birth, and so are bondswomen and bondsmen. I suppose they still had uh, sort of slavery in those days, or feudal system, more than a feudal system. Goats and sheep, fowl and pig, elephants, cattle, horses and mares. Now these sort of things were actually great wealth in those days. Elephants were really wealth, and cattle and horses were the wealth that people had. Gold and silver, these essentials of existence are subject to birth, and one who is entangled with these and unwarily committed to them is one who, being himself subject to birth, seeks what is also subject to birth. So what he's trying to tell them is quite clear, isn't it, that he's trying to tell them that if one looks for the worldly things, well, that has to be born, and then comes age, sickness, and death. And what may be said to be subject to old age, wife and children are subject to old age, and so are bondswomen and bondsmen, goats and sheep, fowl and pig, elephant, cattle, horses and mares, gold and silver. These essentials of existence are subject to old age, and one who is entangled with these and unworthily committed to them is one who, being himself subject to aging, seeks what is also subject to aging. I think when we look at gold and silver, we are uh, concerned not so much with the word of old age or aging, 
but deterioration the um, um, the fact of the uh, value system when we look at it from our standpoint now the value system which is uh, not only uh, fluctuating but usually on the downgrade so that creates sorrow again that once gold and silver isn't quite worth as much as it was you know last year that type of thing and what may be said to be subject to disease and wife and children are subject to disease and so are goats and sheep fowls and pigs elephants cattle horses and mares gold and silver these essentials of existence are subject to disease see sorry and one who is entangled with these and unworthily committed to them is one who being himself subject to disease seeks what is also subject to disease and what may be said to be subject to death and the same thing again huh? wife and children bondswomen bondsmen goats sheep fowl pig ele- elephant cattle horses and mares gold and silver now in this case death is also lost what we what dies we can also lose we can lose wives and children and husbands it's just totally sexist language it's um, we can also lose husbands <laughs> and um, um, and uh, one can lose gold and silver one can lose one's wealth huh? so it's not just death it's loss well, we have to see that this is sort of included here hmm? what may be said to be subject to sorrow wife and children are subject to sorrow and so are all the rest of the things these essential of existence are subject to sorrow and one who is entangled with these and unworthily committed to them is one who being himself subject to sorrow seeks what is also subject to sorrow and what may be said to be subject to defilement wife and children are subject to defilement and so are bondswomen and bondsmen goats and sheep fowls and pigs elephants cattle horses and mares gold and silver these essential of existence are subject to defilement and one who is entangled with these and unworthily committed to them is one who being himself subject to defilement seeks what is also subject to defilement this is the ignoble search what the buddha is trying to point out here is the fact that all of us are subject to birth, aging, decay and death. We are also subject to sorrow, we have sorrow, and we also have defilement. So, to search, in other words, to put one's attention on and one's interest in those worldly things which have exactly the same characteristics as we have, must produce double dukkha. It can't do anything else. I mean, we've already got plenty of dukkha as it is, and a lot of this dukkha, that extra dukkha, <coughs> is produced by the fact that we either don't get what we want, maybe we don't get enough goats or sheep, nowadays probably cars and, and, and um, boats, and, um, <laughs> and, on, and maybe those that we have get lost, which is the death of them or that we have to worry about their decay aspect aging is a decay aspect now anything that we have that has materiality corporality in it is subject to decay i don't care what it is 
Now every day one has to clean it, keep it in order, repair it, and then eventually renew it. It is impossible not to do that with everything that has materiality. All aspects of materiality have only one thing in common and that's decay. And because of that, they are connected to sorrow. If we are attached to them or if we, not even just attached to them, if they are a large part of our existence. And this large part of our existence which is concerned with the upkeep, repair and then finally renewal of these material things can be nothing but sorrow. So aging aspect is decay, death aspect is loss and the birth aspect is the getting of. We've got to go and get it somewhere. And the more we try to get, the more dukkha we've got. Because every, everything that we're looking for means that we have something that is dissatisfied, so we need something more. So that's the birth aspect, huh? It's the getting, the, the, the gaining of it, aging is the decay aspect, and um, the death is the loss. Now the, uh, the ailment which is always present is this um, aspect that no matter what it is, it's got to be looked after. We're sort of a nurse even to this house. One has to clean the floors, one has to wash the toilets, one has to clean the dishes, one has to do all sorts of things. One is like a nursemaid to all the things which exist. And that's the disease, the uh, aspect, the ailment aspect of whatever exists. And primarily, of course, we've got to be a nurse to this body. Even when it's not sick. It's got constant demands. If it had the, if we didn't have some sense in our heads, we would constantly ring the bell for attention like one does in a hospital when a nurse hasn't come it wants to eat it wants to drink it wants to go to the toilet it wants to have a shower needs his hair cut nails cut teeth filled needs to go to sleep needs to wake up needs to have exercise needs to get dressed nicely it's got all sorts of demands and it certainly has birth old age decay and death inbuilt because of birth so it is that part of it which is the difficulty but the Buddha does not refer to that at this point he's referring to our interest in worldly matters and worldly things that's what he's mostly talking about. Any questions so far up to this point? Quite clear. Okay. Now he's talking about the noble search. 
And what is the noble search? He is someone himself subject to birth, old age, decay and death, sorrow and defilement, and knowing the danger in these dhammas, in these phenomena, seeks the unborn, the unaging, the unailing, the undiseased, unailing, the deathless, sorrowless, undefiled, supreme surcease of bondage, which is Nibbana. Now all the words that are used here are also synonyms for the word Nibbana, unborn, unaging, not the unailing one, deathless, sorrowless, undefiled, supreme, no, the surcease of bondage, yes, all of those are synonyms for the word Nibbana, and they are all adjective uh, descriptions of Nibbana. I didn't mention earlier the word defilement. Of course, we have defilements. There's no question about it. And anything that we can have increases the defilement. It's not so much that these sheep and goats and fowls and pigs have defilements, which they undoubtedly have, but they're not of great concern to us. Um, the things that we own, want to own, and not lose, increase our defilement of clinging and craving. So the defilement aspect of the worldly uh, worldly attention and to things is the um, this increase in clinging and craving. So now he says if one if oneself has all this birth, old age, this disease and death, decay and death, and sorrow and defilement and if we realize the danger in these phenomena, then we're going to seek for Nibbana. But do we know the danger in these phenomena? I think this must be considered to be the crux of the whole matter. If we don't see the danger, why should we get out? For the first, in the first instance, everybody else is doing it. Can everybody else be right and uh, wrong and I'm right? Very difficult. Everybody else is looking for all these material things. Now, obviously, you can translate all these animals and things into the things that we're searching for. I mean, that's not difficult to translate. Um, so, do we see the danger? The danger in all this stuff. Well, what is actually the danger? First of all, the danger is, of course, that they create some disturbance. They have to be, as I said already, they have to be first gotten and then kept going. And when, when they disappear, they have to be renewed. So once energy and time is spent on them, on the things, on the worldly matters, that's one danger. The other danger is that one becomes totally attached to it and can't bear to be parted from them. So every time anything is lost, it's a tragedy. Instead of knowing that whatever has arisen must cease and we're totally at ease about the whole thing, including this body or any other body, um, the whole thing becomes a tragedy. Within that tragedy <coughs> lies the fear aspect, the fear of loss. We haven't lost it yet, but we know very well that we eventually will. Like the people who are fond of each other often say, I want to die before you because then the loss aspect is on the other person. The other person is all right, can bear the loss. I don't want to be the one that has the loss. You know, it's a very common, it's very, very common. Um, 
and it's not meant unkindly it's just something that is actually supposed to uh, denote the um, the enormous uh, uh, love one has for this other person doesn't it just denote the attachment one has um, so with the uh, clinging and craving for the things the fear arises now this is one of the great dangers to live in fear instead of in liberty since everybody is very used to being fearful most people don't notice it they think that's the normal way to live and to tell the truth it is it is the normal way to live but we don't have to be satisfied with being normal and that's where the whole crux of the matter is if we are so used to living in fear and which is tension of course because we're afraid to lose what we finally got and not to get what we do want then this becomes a habitual state of being and we don't even know it anymore it, the body does react to this quite often with many aches and pains and difficulties which are legion but it still does not necessarily point out this absolute truth to us it may point out to us that we need to relax a bit more and take it easy a little bit more and maybe take a holiday a little more often which is all fine but it doesn't go to the depths of seeing that there is also a noble search which has nothing to do with any of the worldly matters so this is a very important tiny little sentence here whether we know the danger in these phenomena now this is a noble search he says and so he now starts to tell what the noble search is and starts out with a search for enlightenment and now he talks about the time before he was enlightened which is also quite interesting because obviously he can relate to that maybe a little better Likus, before my enlightenment while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva I've talked about that already what that means I too, being myself subject to birth, old age, disease and death, sorrow and defilement, thought what was also subject to birth, old age, disease, death and sorrow and defilement. And I considered that. In other words, he lived a totally normal life, he's saying. He had a wife and uh, he lived in a palace and uh, he had all the enjoyments of a prince and uh, he lived a very normal life, he's saying. I now consider thus why being myself subject to birth, old age, disease and death, sorrow and defilement why do I seek what is also subject to those? Why am I doing that? Suppose that myself being subject to these phenomena knowing the danger in these phenomena I seek the unborn, the unaging, unailing, deathless, soulless, undefiled supreme surcease of bondage which is Nibbana so he's asking himself, why am, I, why am I doing this? What am I doing this for? Why don't I just go try to find liberty? Hmm? Now later, now he tells his life story. While still a boy, a black-haired youth, endowed with the blessing of youth, in the first phase of life, I shaved off my hair and beard, though my mother and father wished otherwise, and grieved with tearful faces, I put on the yellow cloth and went forth from the house, house life into homelessness. So he tells that he went off as a monk. Now he obviously didn't go off as a Buddhist monk because there weren't any Buddhists in his time. 
after he, after he became a Buddha, then of course there were Buddhist monks, and he tells about them too in this story. But there were many monks in India, um, monks which were often called ascetics, and um, because in India it was and still is considered to be the way to total liberation to live a very ascetic life. And he tried that too. He'll probably tell about that later. Um, so he went off as a monk without hair and uh, with a yellow cloth. Now this yellow cloth is also very common in India and only now associated with the Buddhist monk. monk but um, even then it was not uncommon. Now having gone forth in search of what is profitable, Seeking the supreme state of sublime peace, I went to Alara Kalama, and I said to him, Friend Kalama, I want to lead the life divine in this Dhamma and discipline. And these are very traditional words. Now, Alara Kalama was a well-known meditation teacher in the time of the Buddha. He's very famous because he was the Buddha's first meditation teacher. And um, that's how he's famous to us. In those days he was well known. And the life divine means holy life, which means a life of, um, well, it means, first of all, a sexual abstinence, and uh, which is always associated with the holy life. And it also means, means uh, in those days and times, it would have meant probably some asceticism uh, associated with it. But the, the holy life, life divine it's called here, but the holy life I think is a little better, is uh, also a life not within the family, not family life, the opposite of family life. And in this Dhamma and discipline, now today we say that that is the Buddha's teaching and the discipline, the rules of the order for monks and nuns but that of course didn't exist before he became the Buddha so in this Dhamma and discipline in this teaching and discipline whatever Alara Kalama was uh, proficient in he wants to take Alara Kalama as his teacher when this was said Alara Kalama replied the Venerable One may stay here this Dhamma is such that in no long time a wise man can enter upon and abide in it, himself realizing through direct knowledge his own teacher's doctrine. So he's offering him his doctrine. Alara Kalama's understanding is offering it to, to, the, to the Bodhisattva. And direct knowledge again means your own experience. And a wise man can enter upon and abide in it, means that you can enter in it and remain within that understanding. So, whatever the Dhamma was that he offered him. I soon learned the Dhamma. I claimed that as far as mere lip reciting and rehearsal of his teachings went, I could speak with knowledge and assurance, and that I knew and saw, and there were others that did likewise. In other words, he says now, the Buddha says, that he soon learned all that that Alara Kalama tried to teach him and he recited it and rehearsed it and he could speak about it with knowledge and assurance and he also knew and saw now the word saw 
always denotes the inner vision, which means the not just the understanding, but the to- total absorption of that what one knows, which means one can no longer be otherwise. This is, of course, an extremely important aspect of anything that we may have done here, talked about here. Usually, and quite naturally, that what we know and that what we can do is quite a long distance apart. And that's very natural. In order to counteract this natural phenomenon, we need to, as I've said before and will say again, we need to bring back into mind any realization we may have had, any insight, any understanding, bring it to the foreground, the forefront of the mind and try to actualize it, be it, do it. And as we've done that several times, often enough, it becomes our own ground of being. As an example, when we were small, we, we, I might have t- stolen a cookie from our mother, and when she asked us, did you take a cookie out of the cookie jar, we would say, no, I didn't. That must have been John from next door. Well, we wouldn't do this anymore. Our ground of being is not anymore lying, but our ground of being has become honesty. So this is how we change ourselves from the defilements and try to get away from them. So he didn't only know it, lip reciting, rehearsal of teaching, he could speak about with knowledge and assurance, and he knew and saw. And there were others that did likewise. He said he wasn't the only one. I consider it is not through mere faith alone that Alara Kalama declares his Dhamma. That Alara Kalama declares his Dhamma. He does so because he enters upon and abides in it, himself realizing it through direct knowledge. Certainly, Alara Kalama abides in this Dhamma knowing and seeing. So now the Buddha says that he realized that his teacher didn't only just declare the Dhamma out of faith, but he was actually in it, could live in it, and had realized it through personal experience, direct knowledge, realizing through direct knowledge, personal experience. So he abides in this, it's his ground of being, and he knows it and sees it inwardly. Abiding in it is his ground of being. So he, had, he thought he was a good man. And then I went to Alara Kalama and I said to him, Friend, Kalama, in what way do you declare to have entered upon this Dhamma, yourself realizing it through direct knowledge? How, how do you declare that, that um, you are teaching? What is, your, what is the mainstay of your teaching? When this was said, Alaraka Kalama declared the base consisting of nothingness. Now it's well known, anyone who's ever read the Buddha's life history, that this first teacher took him as far as the seventh jhana. And uh, so he declared that. And not only did he declare it as the seventh jhana, but he declared it as the epitome of what a spiritual person could realize in this life. 
Now he's asked, in what way do you declare to have entered upon this Dhamma you yourself realizing it through direct knowledge, so he declares the base of nothingness. And that is his direct knowledge, his direct understanding. Now I considered, not only Alara Kalama has faith, I too have faith. Not only Alara Kalama has energy, I too have energy. Not only Alara Kalama has mindfulness, I too have mindfulness. Not only Alara Kalama has concentration, I too have concentration. Not only Alara Kalama has wisdom, I too have some wisdom. Suppose I exercise control in order to realize the Dhamma that he declares to have entered upon, himself realizing it through direct knowledge. Now, the five things he mentions are faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And these are the five spiritual faculties when developed and cultivated become the five spiritual powers, the five balas. And they are ten, five faculties, five powers, ten of the 37 sectors of enlightenment. So we are here seeing that the Buddha, even before he was a Buddha, was aware that these are necessary for the path. Now let's go through them once more, you see, because they are absolutely essential to go along this path. Now the word faith, we often translate it as confidence. In Pali it's Sadha, S-A-D-H-A, and we often translate as confidence because in our language, in English, faith has not a very nice reputation because it's always considered to be blind. And that's not a very good reputation to be, to be reputed to be blind. So we rather use, in English, the word confidence. And um, this confidence, or when we call it faith, should go together with wisdom or understanding. It should never stand alone. Because if faith, for instance, stands alone, it becomes an emotional um, realization within, which does not have anything else to base itself upon except the emotion of liking something which seems to be not. That's not good enough. There's no realization possible when one likes something that appears to be not. Because it can then, at another time, appear to be not so nice and be disliked. And the whole path is blocked. So it has to be coupled with, and here the word panya, which means wisdom, is translated as understanding. And I think that might be a wiser choice because we do not pride ourselves to have wisdom, but we do pride ourselves to have some understanding. We're not utterly stupid. We do have understanding. So if we couple a devotional aspect (coughs) of giving our heart to a spiritual path with understanding what we're trying to do, we've got the best combination.
we're looking at a combination of heart and mind and since we do have both one thinking one feeling which we talked about yesterday and I like to divide that up into heart and mind thinking and feeling since both of us both of these aspects are the essential aspects of each person they have to work together and cooperate with each other and support each other otherwise we are divided into half and we will not be able to go along a spiritual path wholeheartedly half-heartedly or half-mindedly either way it doesn't work we've got to have some understanding of what we're trying to do why we're doing it just exactly what the Buddha said here that um, we know the danger we have some understanding but we also have the love for what we're doing that loving devotion that this is something that will create within a different ground of being now that different ground of being may be one that is more peaceful but it may also be one that fear has a total freedom in it so these two have to go together then we have concentration and energy and that has to go together energy is mind energy it's mental energy and it's very essential for meditation without it meditation doesn't work it becomes trance it can't work without energy but if there's too much energy we don't get concentration we get restlessness so if we can balance the two again if we can balance our mental energy with a concentrated mind we are in the position to have the meditative absorption and know that we've got them and don't uh, have any difficulty in recognizing the mind state afterwards the energy is necessary for that and also of course to get into it so energy and concentration are both very essential for the uh, meditative path and of course at the top of the list usually is mindfulness however here it isn't here the first one was faith and the second one was uh, third one was mindfulness usually it's um, mindfulness at the top of the list the one-pointed understanding and awareness of what we're doing so these five the Buddha realizes when he was still the Bodhisattva that he was going to need them and had to exercise control over them in order to realize the Dhamma that he declares to have entered upon himself realizing it through direct knowledge and I soon entered an, upon an abode in that Dhamma myself realizing it through direct knowledge now what Dhamma? the base of nothingness that's what the Allah Kalama declares the base of nothingness that's the Dhamma that the Buddha now entered upon and abode in it stayed in it and realized it through his own experience direct knowledge, own experience and then I went to Alara Kalama and I said to him, Friend Kalama, is it in this way that you declare to have entered upon this Dhamma, yourself realizing it through direct knowledge? 
So what one should assume that was said was that the Buddha described the base of nothingness to his teacher as one is wont to do and said, is that what you did? Is that how you realized the Dhamma through your own experience? And Alara Kaulama said, it is in this way, friend, that I declare to have entered upon this Dhamma myself realizing it through direct knowledge. And then the Buddha answers, Friend, I too in this way enter upon and abide in this Dhamma, myself realizing it through direct knowledge. So he declares to him that he has entered the base of nothing. And um, because Alara Kalama thinks that this is all that one can possibly do, he now says, It is gain for us, friend, it is great gain for us, that we have such a venerable one as our companion in the holy life. So the Dhamma that I declare to have entered upon myself, realizing it through direct knowledge, that Dhamma you enter upon and abide in, yourself realizing it through direct knowledge. And the Dhamma that you enter upon and abide in, yourself realizing it through direct knowledge, that Dhamma I declare to have entered upon myself, realizing it through direct knowledge. So you know the Dhamma that I know, I know the Dhamma that you know. As I am, so you are, as you are, so am I. Come, friend, let us now lead this community together. So he's making him his um, companion teacher. Or at least he's trying to. Not successful, but he's trying to. Thus, Alara Kalama, my teacher, placed me, his pupil, on an equal footing with himself and awarded me the highest honor. I considered this Dhamma does not lead to this fashion to fading of lust, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to full enlightenment, to nibbana. But it leads only to the base consisting of nothingness. I was not satisfied with that Dhamma. I left it and went away. This is, of course, a very famous story. And um, it has a lot to do with the fact that in those days, and today too, that in the one part of the... uh, Hindu teaching, these high jhanas are considered to be the epitome of achievement. Seeking the supreme state of sublime peace, I went to Uddhaka Ramaputta, also very famous, of course, to this day because he was the Buddha's second teacher. And uh, Putta means son, so he was the son of Rama and uh, was from a village called Uddhaka. And I said to him, friend, I want to lead the holy life in this Dhamma and discipline. And when this was said, Uttaka Ramaputta replied, the venerable one may stay here. This Dhamma is such that in no long time a wise man can enter upon and abide in it, himself realizing through direct knowledge his own teacher's doctrine. I soon learned the Dhamma. I claimed that as far as mere lip reciting and rehearsal of his teaching went, I could speak with knowledge and assurance and that I knew and saw, and there were others who did likewise. I considered, it is not through mere faith alone that Rama declares his Dhamma, but he does so because he enters upon and abides in it, himself realizing it through direct knowledge. Certainly Rama abides in this Dhamma, knowing and seeing. So again he got faith in this teacher because he realized that this teacher was doing, was not just talking, he was doing it. And then I went to Uddhaka Ramaputta and I said to him, Friend, Rama, in what way do you declare to have entered upon this Dhamma, yourself realizing it through direct knowledge, 
When this was said, he declared the base consisting of neither perception nor non-perception. Now, one does need to realize that, of course, before the Buddha got to the base of nothingness, uh, he went through the other jhanas. But what is being said is that that was the final result of his stay with Alara Kalama, that he went as far as the base of nothingness. And now he gets to know the eighth one, the base of neither perception or non-perception. And because these are quite um, advanced stages of meditation, the um, teachers thought that this was all there was to it. Um, and I considered, not only Rama has faith, I too have faith. Not only Rama has energy, I too have energy. Not only Rama has mindfulness, I too have mindfulness. Not only Rama has concentration, I too have concentration. Not only Rama has understanding, I too have understanding. Suppose I exercise control, mind control, in order to realize the Dhamma that he declares to have entered upon himself, realizing it through direct knowledge. Um, what the Bodhisattva is uh, considering there and the Buddha is telling us about is the fact that he had this clear vision that if the teacher can do it, I can do it too. And that's correct. Because he has already gone through the base of infinite consciousness and infinite space and learned through that that there is only one mind and there is only one consciousness. So if one consciousness can do it, there's absolutely no reason why another consciousness can't do it. It's all one. So this kind of faith and confidence which arose is based on reality. And because he had self-confidence, confidence in his in the ability, he could do it. It's a very important point. If one has a feeling of, well, you know, I'm less than others, it's just as damaging as when one thinks I'm more than others. There's only one consciousness and there's only one space, one form. So it, that it's divided up into little parts is actually an optical illusion and certainly an, an egocentric illusion and it doesn't bear itself out in any kind of analytical or scientific exploration. So when he saw that this teacher could do it, he said, yeah, sure, I can do that too. I've got the same five faculties. Now those five are faculties that all of us have. They only become powers when they have been cultivated and developed. Now obviously at this point in time, here with the Buddha, they may have already been powers because they, do, they did lead them on to enlightenment. They may have been very well-developed faculties, that's not mentioned, but they, they are the same. You may have heard me uh, give this uh, simile for these before, which I will do again. Um, they are, they are very often compared to uh, two pairs of horses that are pulling a wagon with one lead horse. The lead horse can go as fast as it wishes and the two pairs have to be balanced otherwise the wagon will topple. The lead horse is mindfulness and the two pairs belonging together are faith and understanding and energy and concentration and they have to go side by side otherwise if one pulls too fast the whole thing goes haywire so if we have too much um, emotional um, devotion and de emotional and devotional um, 
giving of ourselves without an understanding that is totally unbalanced and we find that very much uh, in uh, Eastern traditions if we have only the understanding and no devotion it's also unbalanced and we find that very much in the West so if we could join the two together and get that kind of balancing of devotion and um, giving oneself and couple that with an understanding of what we're doing we get a wonderful mixture energy and concentration is of course something we have to practice the uh, energy is aroused usually when interest finally dawns on one that this is really something and the concentration is a matter of practice so again he's using those five he's pulling those five together in his mind in order to gain access to the eight uh, jhana neither perception nor non-perception which in essence and we have talked about these jhanas before but in essence its main claim to fame is well it's got two main claims to fame one is that it is re-energizes the mind to the greatest extent because the mind really has nothing to do at that time or practically nothing and its second claim to fame is the fact that it has already diminished the me assertion to such an extent that the next step which goes into letting go of that uh, personal identity is no longer so difficult so it has two extremely important aspects how one experiences it is difficult to say and as you have noticed by now I'm sure the Buddha never says it just is it's a base of neither perception or non-perception and what we do experience there is a shutting down of all faculties including feeling and the shutting down of all faculties makes the mind you can say it makes it very light but even that is not experienced until after and it has a um, it brings with it also a certain a, a certainty of the ability of oneself that one can actually deal with these matters and that they're not just fantastic states of mind for spiritual geniuses so he has now these five faculties I soon entered upon and abode in that Dhamma myself realizing a true direct knowledge I soon got into that eighth jhana and stayed in it and had the personal experience of it hmm? then I went to Uddhaka Ramaputta and I said to him friend Rama is it in this way that you declare to have entered upon the Dhamma yourself realizing it through direct knowledge it is in this way friend that Rama declares to have entered upon the Dhamma himself realizing it through direct knowledge friend I too in this way enter upon and abide in this Dhamma myself realizing it through direct knowledge and again the teacher says it is gain for us friend it is great gain for us that we have such a venerable one for our companion in the holy life so the Dhamma that Rama declares to have entered upon 
Himself realizing it through direct knowledge, that Dhamma you enter upon and abide in, yourself realizing it through direct knowledge. So you know that Dhamma that Rama knows. Rama knows the Dhamma that you know. As Rama is, so you are. As you are, so Rama is. Come, friend. Do you now lead this community? So again, you want... Actually, um, this um, second teacher, this Udaka Ramaputta, wants to give up his community and give them to the Buddha. He doesn't want to be a teacher anymore. He wants to give the whole thing to the Buddha. Thus, Udaka Ramaputta, my companion in the life divine, placed me in the teacher's place. So he wants you know, to substitute him, and accorded me the highest honor. I considered this Dhamma does not lead to dispassion, to fading of lust, to cessation to peace, to direct knowledge, to full enlightenment, to Nibbana. But it only leads to the base consisting of neither perception or non-perception. I was not satisfied with that Dhamma. I left it and went away. Still in search of what is profitable, seeking the supreme state of sublime beasts, I wandered by stages through the Magadan country, Magadha is his home country, till at length I arrived at Senani Gama near Uruvela. Gama means village, Senani Gama near Uruvela. Uruvela is a forest. There I saw an agreeable piece of ground, a delightful grove, a clear, clear, sorry, a clear flowing river with pleasant smooth banks and nearby a village as an arms resort. I considered, there is this agreeable piece of ground, this delightful grove, this clear flowing river with pleasant smooth banks and nearby a village for arms resort. This will serve for the endeavor of a clansman who seeks endeavor. And as I sat down there thinking, this will serve for endeavor. In other words, he found a good place at the, near this village near the um, on a, near the river and um, he sat down to do his meditation he left both teachers because he thought quite rightly that then their achievement although a very good achievement wasn't enough and this is where his new reform of teaching started when he gained his own enlightenment because until then in a great part of the Brahminical uh, teaching, this was considered all there was. And in his own way, he realized that although this was very delightful what he was doing, there was still a dukkha to be had, even though he had uh, gained the eighth jhana. Being myself subject to birth, old age, disease and death, sorrow and defilement, Knowing the danger in these dhammas, seeking the unborn, unaging, deathless, soulless, undefiled, supreme surcease of bondage, which is Nibbana, I attained the unborn, unaging, unailing, deathless, soulless, undefiled, supreme surcease of, uh, of bondage, which is Nibbana. The knowledge and vision arose in me. My deliverance is unassailable. This is my last birth. There is now no, review, no renewal of being. Now, first of all, The knowledge and vision arose in him. It is, it's, the onus is on oneself to know when one has done so, when one has been delivered. Secondly, what he's saying is actually very important, but it's, it's said so sh- in such a short way that we don't really get the idea of what's behind it. 
what's behind it is this and there's a very important aspect when one is aware of the danger this is one step on the inside path the danger which lies within existence one was aware of that then comes as a next step that one realizes that things are always changing always dukkha what he's saying yeah? first decay disease and death always dukkha sorrow is dukkha always changing birth old age and that within all that we can't find anything worth finding so the mind actually in order to gain enlightenment changes its aspect from trying to be with any of the jhanas trying to find that which doesn't have any arising and ceasing in it now the mind has to look for something which it doesn't know and obviously it doesn't know what Nibbana is like but it does know that that what it has so far experienced is not satisfactory because it has within it the arising and ceasing birth, age, decay and death means nothing else except rising and ceasing every breath is born and dies it gets older in the process and dies every heartbeat is born gets older and dies every day is born gets older and dies everything has birth, decay and death in it so that also applies to all eight jhanas they're born they decay and die and disappear so when the Buddha is talking about everything that's born decaying and dying he's not just talking about this body which is of course born decaying and dying on old age in it and all the rest of it but he's talking about the understanding that there's nothing that's exempt from that when he talks about horses and goats and cattle and sheep and gold and silver what he's aiming at to show is that all of it is like that there's no exemption so when we have seen this this danger in this existence because we can never grasp anything and make sure then the mind wants something that does have certainty that does not have the arising and ceasing in it it's unborn, unaging, unailing and deathless so in order to be all the others it's got to be unborn otherwise it's got to die so the mind is looking for something which doesn't have movement in it now as a mind moment there can be such a mind moment the mind looks for that how it can be for a moment without having anything in it it does not apply like any of the jhanas because all the jhanas have the recognition 
of the jhana in it, even though the eighth one is almost gone, the recognition is almost gone, there still is that, that it is neither perception nor non-perception. It is, there is still a little perception. It's not non-perception. But within that, what the mind really wants now, there is a moment which I have already mentioned to you before, which I call the still point. And because the mind knows already that in order to be deathless, it's got to be unborn, it is willing at that time to give up all that which has been born, which is oneself. And go back to that which is unborn. I mentioned already yesterday those very interesting words of unborn emptiness. The mind that wants it will go there. But it has to do that out of two abilities. The first ability is that of concentration <coughs> and a realization that peacefulness arises when the me is in it. And the second is that urgency to find completeness. And having seen that completeness is nowhere where arising and ceasing exists. Okay, is that clear? Yes, no. Mm. <laughs> so what the Buddha is saying here in this little paragraph is that, that the mind goes to look for that. It goes to look for the unborn. And although the mind hasn't got an idea yet what it's like, it certainly knows what it doesn't want. It doesn't want the arising and ceasing, which it has had all the time. It has had the birth, the aging, ailment, death, sorrow and defilement, it knows the danger in those and it now seeks that which is otherwise, unborn and therefore because of unborn it's also not decaying and not deathless and so forth, no sorrow in it and with the mind being geared in that direction and as you've heard before we can put our mind deliberately in a certain direction has been mentioned over and over again in many different suttas. It can attain to that. Because what one mind can do, all minds can do. Eventually. Maybe not right this minute, but eventually. Now in the next, now he, he knows that he has done it. And I considered now you see that there's a lot of consideration in the Buddha's mind. We've had that before, right? There are considerations, inside our considerations. This Dhamma that I have attained is profound, hard to see and hard to discover. This is quite an interesting paragraph. It is the most peaceful and superior goal of all, unattainable by mere rationalization, subtle and for the wise to experience. But this generation loves something to rely on. What generation? This generation? No, our generation. Every generation. 
Everybody wants something to rely on, right? So he's talking about his generation, but nothing has changed. This generation loves something to rely on, delights in something to rely on. It's glad of something to rely on. It is hard for such a generation to see the truth, namely, specific conditionality depends origination. Now that's another complete set of um, teaching which would be go much too far to explain right now, but I, I will men- I'll do that tomorrow, I'll mention them. But what it's talking, what he's talking about that in his understanding, through his enlightenment, he realized that everything that exists is cause and effect. Everything has condition underlying it. And because no single condition can ever be relied upon not to change, nothing that exists can be relied upon. So that's what he's saying. Specific conditionality depend origination which is a whole large discourse in it, so are many, many, several discourses. And it is hard to see this truth, namely, the stilling of all formations. Formations are mental formations. The stilling of all mental formations. Relinquishing all essentials of existence. He's talking about the Nibbanic moment. The relinquishing of all essentials of existence not wanting to be here anymore not wanting to disappear but not hanging on anymore the clinging, the craving, gone the exhaustion of craving the fading of lust cessation, Nibbana and if I taught that Dhamma others would not understand me and that would be weariness and a bother for me. <laughs> I, I think it's a very nice paragraph because he did this. <laughs> he did this. He thought like this when he was sitting under the bow tree after his enlightenment. A very famous paragraph. Uh, after his enlightenment, he was considering, you know, what he was going to do with this great uh, uh, experience he's had. In fact, there came to me spontaneously these stanzas never heard before. Enough, nor teach the Dhamma that even I found hard to reach, for it will never be perceived by those who live in lust and hate. Man died in lust and whom a cloud of darkness laps will never see what goes against the stream. Is subtle, deep and hard to see, abstruse. So he convinced himself that it was useless to say a word because nobody's going to understand him anyway. Anything. Anyway, now, considering thus, my mind favored inaction instead of teaching the Dhamma. Then the Brahma, Sahampati, which means one of the highest, of the highest Brahma realms, the four in, um, imiti, the non-form realms, the last four realms of non-form, and the name is Sahampati, knew in mind the thought in my mind, and he considered. One could say, I mean, the story is told that this Brahma Sahampati came to visit the Buddha, but uh, since he hasn't got any form, I mean, so he came to visit him, but in mind, of course. 
So one could say in our language today that he had contact with one of the highest uh, beings in the Brahma realms and that this contact came out like this, that this Sampati said, the world will be lost, the world will be utterly lost since the mind of the Tathagata, Arahant and fully enlightened one, favors inaction instead of teaching the Dhamma. Then just as soon as a strong man might extend his flexed arm or flex his extended arm, the divinity, the Brahma, Sahampati, vanished in the world of the Brahmas and appeared before me. In other words, he wasn't, he came to the Buddha, but in, in his, um, from mind to mind, huh? Then he arranged his upper robe on one shoulder and raising his hands palm together towards me, he said, Venerable Sir, the Blessed One teach the Dhamma. There are beings with little dust in their eyes who are wasting through not hearing the Dhamma. Some of them will gain final knowledge of the Dhamma. Now this is where the very famous sentence, little dust in our eyes, comes from. And that's where I took it from, for one of my little books because it, uh, it is a very strong feeling then with the Buddha that there actually are beings with little dust in their eyes. The divinity, the Brahma, Sahampati, spoke thus, and having done so, he said further, In Magadha, till now have Dhammas been unpurified, thought out by those still saved. Open the deathless gateway, let them hear the Dhamma the Immaculate has found. And just as one sees all the folk around who stands upon a solid pile of rock, survey, O sorrowless, all-seeing sage, this human breed engulfed in sorrowing, that birth has as its mercy and old age, arise, victorious hero, knowledge-bringer, free from all debt, and wander in the world, proclaim the Dhamma. There are some, O blessed one, will understand. In other words, he is asking him to remember that in Magadha, which is the home country and where he is, that there are teachings being taught which are unpurified. The Buddha should open the gateway to the deathless because he could see that the uh, human mankind is engulfed in dukkha. So compassion is needed. And um, birth and old age has them at their mercy. And now you are the hero. And so come and wander in the world and proclaim the Dhamma because there will be some who will understand and then I listened to the Brahma's pleading out of compassion for beings I surveyed the world with the eye of a Buddha surveying the world with the eye of a Buddha I saw beings with little dust in their eyes and with much dust in their eyes with keen faculties and with dull faculties with good qualities and bad qualities easy to teach, hard to teach and some that dwelt seeing fear and blame and in the other world. Just as in a pond of blue or red or white lotuses, some lotuses that are born and grow in the water thrive immersed in the water without rising out of it, and some other lotuses that are born and grow in water rest on the water's surface, and some other lotuses that are born and grow in the water rise out of the water and stand clear, unwetted by it, so too surveying the world. I saw beings with little dust in their eyes, much dust, keen faculty, dull faculty, good quality, bad quality, easy to teach, hard to teach, and some that dwelt, seeing fear and blame, and in the other world. 
And then I replied to the Brahma Sahampati in stanza, Open for them are the deathless doors, let those that hear now show their face. Seeing the Buddha, I spoke not for men, Dhamma is subtle and sublime, Brahman. So he agrees. He agrees to teach, which is good for us, because otherwise we would never have heard this. Um, the um, simile with the lotuses is uh, also very often used, and if you, you can look at the lotuses as water lilies, but lotuses have one particular quality that water lilies not have, don't have that much. They do have it too. Some don't grow out of the water. Some stay under the water. They don't grow big enough to come out of the water. Some rest themselves on the water, but, some, but lotuses in particular have very long stems and come all the way out, and then they are no longer touched by the water. So he's uh, comparing them to people that have um, some keen faculties, dull, good qualities, bad qualities, easy and hard to teach. And seeing fear in blame and in the other world, fear to do wrong, fear to do wrong, not uh, being praised and blamed by others, but fear to do wrong and fear to have to go through existence after existence and those of course are the ones that are most easily taught so um, he agrees now to teach there he's opening the opening the deathless doors and those that here should show their faith and show their faith means by practice sometimes the Buddha was asked um, how people could um, show their gratitude and respect them they said by practice get enlightened and um, and seeing the brother I spoke not for men dhamma subtle and sublime so one should appreciate that it is a hard work that he did and uh, he spoke it for those that would understand the dhamma I'll just finish the last sentence of this <clears throat> then the Brahma Sampati thought, I have made it possible for the Dhamma to be taught by the Blessed One, and after paying homage to me, keeping me on the right, the Brahma departed. So it, one could say that the Buddha had a direct uh, contact with one of the highest beings, and it is said to be one of the, of the highest level of beings who encouraged him to teach, because there would be some that would understand. And uh, it's up to us to prove this the Brahma Sahampati correct. Any questions? Anything? Now as we go on with the Sutta, which we'll do tomorrow, uh, we will see that um, he now teaches in the Enlightenment experience and um, the details really of the insight that come together anything that needs questioning they became followers yes yes when the Buddha returned home after his enlightenment which was six years later, he um, uh, taught the Dhamma at home, at the court, 
and the um, wife had been living as a nun all the time since when he was away and she when the nun's order was established she became a nun that was a little later a few years later and uh, the little fellow who was uh, seven or so at the time uh, not quite maybe he uh, well, wanted to become a novice but the grandfather objected would have father objected and he said already I've lost my son I don't let me get my, lose my grandson wait till he's at least uh, a little older and uh, so he then became a monk at age 20 and to this day you can only become a monk at age 20 you can become a novice younger but um, the, uh, there's very little taught of, uh, told about uh, Rahula his son in at older age but there are two very very nice discourses of the Buddha to his little son when he was small and uh, the wife uh, is also supposed to have become enlightened she's mentioned amongst the enlightened nuns and the son definitely so he brought that what she had gained back to the son that's what he also promised that he would do that when he left I mean there are much longer stories about his life but this is a sort of a condensed version. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Think of all the good things that you have ever done in this life. Those that were generous and helpful to others. Without personal gain. then appreciate those acts and let warmth and contentment with yourself fill you and surround you
and then reach out with appreciation to everyone here. Fill everyone with the warmth from your heart, the contentment of your connection with that person. And let this warmth and contentment fill each person and surround each person here. Now think of those people who are near and dear to you. Think of all their good deeds. Appreciate them for that. Fill them with the warmth from your heart and your contentment to be together.
you think of all your friends, appreciate them for the good things you know about them. Fill them with the warmth from your heart and your contentment being together with them. Think of the people you know, those you work with, those you meet here and there, neighbors, acquaintances, travel companions. Appreciate them for all the good things you know about them. Fill them with the warmth from your heart, your contentment being together with them. Think of any person whom you find difficult, difficult to love or difficult to be with. Think of all the good things you know about that person. Appreciate 
him or her for it. Fill that person too with the warmth from your heart and contentment and gratitude for the learning situation. 